You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst. How are you, David? Giles, I'm very well. I trust you're well also and I trust all of our listeners are enjoying life and uh, keeping their focus on the electricity, gas and decarbonisation industries. And Giles, I hear we've got some very exciting news. There's a new website design at Renew Economy. What, what's the idea behind that? Well, look, after six and a half years and um, 33 million page views and goodness knows how many million visitors and 350,000 visit, unique visitors in the last month, look, we thought it was a bit of a time for a change, freshen up the image. Um, it was put together in a, uh, in a bit of a hurry when we set it up in 2012 and... Um, we just thought we'd change the logo and some of the design. Look, a lot of it's about just making it cleaner and simpler. Um, quite a few of our listeners now use um, look at it through mobile or sort of high-end um, devices. So it's more mobile responsive, easier to use on the mobile. Uh, I think other people will probably find it cleaner. So look, um, as we're doing this podcast recording, it's still in the works. In other words, that the uh, the web people have their hands on it and they're just going through the thing of sort of translating the new design into the website. So fingers crossed everything has gone well and fingers crossed that people do like it. Uh, I know that personally, every time something like The Guardian changes their design, I go, oh God, that's awful. And then two days later, I've forgotten about the old design and I quite like the new one. So, <laughs> it, it reminds me of uh, sitting in an office, uh, you know, where I, I worked in an open plan office for well over 30 years and I can always recall thinking, I've got a wonderful seat in this office, I, I'll, I'd never want to move anywhere else. And of course, uh, you had to move and reorganise. And every time I moved, I suddenly turned out to be the next wonderful spot. And uh, it was great to be sitting next to someone else. And and uh, things went on. So uh, I look forward to seeing the site. I, I hope I can see it tomorrow and not in two weeks' time. But uh, yes, yeah, so, so do I. Because you, you've written a very good piece actually on the neg modelling, which we'll get to later. So I hope that's going to be published. And I know somebody else is contributing something. So um, and of course we want our readers to, to listen to it. Um, on the on the on the subject of desk, um, David, that you would have never taken to hot desking. Then this idea that you turn up at work in the morning and never know where you're going to sit. Well, I guess, again, it depends. But no, personally, I liked uh, the sense of familiarity of knowing where my spot was and who I could talk to and, frankly, leaving my detritus and junk around. But I guess listeners don't particularly want to hear about that, especially in this exciting industry we're dealing with at the moment. And who knew it would be that exciting? Look, we've got a lot to talk about today. Um, We were both at the Clean Energy Summit last week, so we're going to focus a bit on that. Uh, I do have an interview to play for you from Peter Cowling of Vestas Australia um, and then I think we'll probably get into talking about the NEG because that's going to be the big vote this coming Friday at COAG Energy Council and I think it worth some attention but let's have a NEG free zone at the start of this podcast David you were doing the rounds a bit and talking to lots of people at the coffee breaks and lunchtime what, what, what did you get out of it? Well, look, I thought the summit was uh, pretty well organised, except for how having to go up and down three or four flights of every time we wanted a cup of coffee. But uh, look, the AV facilities worked great. Uh, the app actually worked. Uh, and I, for me, the best part of an, a meeting like that, and I'm sure for many other people, is, is all those coffee room conversations. 
and the, the chance to chat with your uh, colleagues, peers and other people you just meet at the, at the conference. I have to say, Giles, with the, I didn't get to the AEMO presentation on batteries, which uh, looking through the presentations afterwards looks like it was pretty wonderful. But other than some comments about the LCOE of wind and how it might come down, I didn't actually think, and, and some comments from the politicians, which are always interesting to hear, hear, hear what they don't say in the body language, if I can put it that way, uh, I didn't actually hear that much interesting. And I, th I thought the moderators really uh, sort of dominated some of the panels and didn't really allow for much audience participation. I'd like to see the CEC step up and get a few more prestige overseas guests who've, you know, some cutting edge research at least, uh, and, and get a bit more actual content into the formal presentations. Well, that's an interesting ob observation. Um, yes, look, I, I guess in terms of sort of something new, then probably not a lot. Um, and I think you're probably right about that. I thought the politicians' addresses at the start were really quite interesting, um, from Richard Di Natale and Mark Butler, who both know their stuff. Um, Don Harwin, who has in the past given a great speech about energy, but didn't give one this time. But he, um, but he, did, he did talk about uh, New South Wales prepared to go at itself on a transmission strategy. Uh, so I, I'm going to give that a tick too. Oh, fair enough, yeah. Look, I was actually at the AEMO presentation on battery storage. Um, well, it wasn't just them, actually. It was a um, couple of other people. Really interesting stuff, actually, and I'm going to get round to writing a story about it in the next couple of days. Um, basically, just sort of talking about the mysteries of how to get value out of a battery. So, And it's interesting, one of the themes I did hear through this con uh, conference was, you know, we've got there's always this focus on how much does stuff cost? How much does it cost? You know, is it $40, $40 or $70 or $80? And one of the things I think we're going to see in a renewable energy-based system is what things are worth and how they're valued. And value, value streams, not cost streams. I, I, I agree with that very strongly. And, you know, to, in favour of dispatchable renewable energy is it gets to set the price, whereas anything that's variable is, is, is a price taker. Giles, you're right on the money, I think. Absolutely. And the interesting thing about the battery storage um, analysis, both by them and by somebody else, and I can't think who it was off the top of my head now, but they were just talking about the hidden value streams in battery storage. So they talked about nine. I've actually heard of about 20 in the past, but they're probably thinking they've narrowed it down to nine that you could actually reasonably get some sort of in income out of. The interesting thing was seven of those value streams probably came in the network and were not really very visible at the moment to the developers and the market in general. So that was an interesting... Um, and it's this concept of how you get paid for them, you know, value stacking and positive externalities. So we hear a lot about, say, uh, carbon emissions as a negative externality or... or uh, uh, but what we don't hear about is positive externalities where something contributes a value but the owner of the service can't receive that value. So you might put a battery in because you uh, want to do some energy arbitrage but actually it uh, uh, results in the network not having to be upgraded. You, someone benefits but you don't. And so the question is with these value streams how how to get them recognised uh, by, the, by the system as a whole. That's exactly right, yes. And um, look, interestingly, um, AEMO, uh, not AEMO, sorry, ARENA, they were the other people who talked about the value streams, that's right. So it was AEMO and ARENA talking about the value streams. So ARENA, Dan Stark from ARENA talked about that as well. And interestingly, he did say there was going to be an announcement sometime soon, didn't really give a time frame, but I'm guessing a couple of weeks, a couple of months, of a new ARENA-funded battery. Um, though this time it would be a slightly different thing than what they've done in the past. 
past and what I'm guessing from what he said, and he wasn't exactly clear about it, but basically a big battery which can actually sort of provide service for a bunch of different farms or um, facilities in the area. So if you imagine an area with a whole bunch of solar and wind um, um, installations, a battery to do whatever it's going to do um, for those things. So that'll be an interesting development coming up sometime soon. And I guess another theme coming out of the conference, of course, that the politicians did refer to was, <laughs> as you might expect, there were lots of people there and more people than last year. It's one thing the politicians certainly pay attention to. It's how many people, uh, their audience, you know, the votes, the influence that's going on. And I think uh, uh, we're seeing the renewable energy getting a pretty good share of the voice now for politicians because it's clearly becoming a much more powerful part of the landscape. And I personally expect that over... The next decade, what we're going to see, uh, unless it stops somehow, is is a few uh, big players. You know, uh, projects themselves are in the utility side are getting bigger. 50 megawatts used to be a big project, but now 500 megawatts is a big project, and I'm not sure it'll be that long before we don't see a gigawatt project on a particular site. Access to connection agreements, to strong connection, uh, is is becoming more and more critical. As you know, we're seeing, uh, and I think this got mentioned, and uh, uh, um, um, Aimo, uh, Audrey Zuberman confirmed your point that there are problems with connections already in Victoria. Indeed. And I expect those to get worse uh, as time goes on. So if you've got a good connection agreement, uh, it's going to be worth a lot of, lot of money going forward. Absolutely, yes. And uh, we actually heard a few more stories uh, in the corridors and over the coffee about um, people with their issues. They thought they were all okay and were basically told they weren't going to be allowed to export very much into the market at all. In fact, they could have just built something and, and, and it would have sat there doing nothing. So that's how critical the issue has actually become in some parts of the network. And another uh, theme emerging out of this uh, success in the industry uh, and, and how success breeds problems, frankly, is that uh, it's taking a long time to commission sites that are already up and running. You, the solar farm, get yourself built, you're all ready to go, but no one, <laughs> the, the industry can't handle you just yet. So, uh, and this is, as an analyst, this is the problem. You're always uh, looking forward uh, through a rear vision mirror and trying to understand how much momentum is actually in there when you look at your forward forecasts of prices and things like that. Absolutely, and I think that's going to affect the LGC market in particular because a lot of those projects aren't going to get built in the time frame thought or they're not going to be operating in the time frame thought and we've already seen that in the Queensland market and people are sort of talking about it, look it's, 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 a, it's a new thing um, for everyone, uh, the networks are wrestling with this issue and they're wrestling with having enough people with the expertise to deal with these things, there's various new limits, you've got to do sort of full report after connecting 25% and 50% and 80% then, and then finally 100%, uh, really of all the solar farms that we've seen connected to the grid this calendar year, I don't think any of them are actually operating at 100% yet. I may be wrong about that, but um, if there is, it might, might only be one or two. And there's about 20 on the, on, the, on the grid at the moment, and they're all at various stages of output. So that's just giving you an indication of how long it's taking to actually get to where they want to be. And don't think you're going to get away with things if you're in the behind the meter industry, because as everyone in that industry is surely aware by now, <laughs> the energy networks and AEMO are coming after your uh, your customers' rooftop uh, and trying to get uh, some control over it somehow or other uh, in the name of it's uh, good for you. 
Yeah, exactly. Look, uh, Mike Swanston, uh, the former Energex guy, has written a really nice piece that we published last week. So um, fingers crossed that the website's back up again tomorrow and you can all go um, looking for that. But um, it's a really good piece of sort of talking about the um, the uh, what's at stake here. And he's, it's really interesting. Mike just asked, and he, he's a former network guy, and he's just sort of asking, saying, well, how is it that the network's suddenly getting to decide what happens and what gets on and what doesn't? So there's a few interesting issues. I mean, it's good that the networks are involved and, and, and obviously they see this technology technology but um look i think there's going to be a few details to be worked out um through anyway it's just like uh it reminds me so much of the microcomputer business where in the early days you could take your little uh you know 8086 uh, personal computer into the office and everyone would go wow and you could access the internet when it finally got started and do whatever you wanted but pretty soon we had the network uh company police coming around uh, locking down your computer only allowing this app and that app and uh uh, it was back to the good old mainframe days. Yeah, well, look, that's maybe exactly where we're heading, but um, let's hope there's some sensible discussions. And look, David, I think we might just take a time now to listen to uh, the interview that I did do in the corridors there. And it's with Peter Cowling. He's the Chief Executive of Vestas Australia, and here he is. Peter Cowling, the Head of Vestas in Australia. Uh, thanks for joining us. G'day, Giles. Good to see you. What's getting you excited now about the wind industry? In a word, momentum. It, it, it feels, there's probably a few words, there's momentum, there's cost of energy, um, there's grid friendliness. Um, so, so something extraordinary has happened in the last five years. Just when I thought we were going to fix the energy problem at 110, 120, 130 bucks a megawatt hour, um, if only someone would pay us that, um, we've, we've, we've found that Again, progressing the technology, just getting better, getting bigger, um, is enabling us to, to halve that and better. Um, well, that's right. Some of the numbers we've been hearing at this Clean Energy Conference um, over the last couple of days has been suggesting prices of around $40 a megawatt hour. N not yet, but possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you can see how that can happen. And, and it's, it's a really interesting combination of um, classic old technology stuff um, but, but also the, the, the model changing a bit, right? So as an OEM, we are now almost universally looking after our machines on a lifetime basis. You know, when I joined the industry, I think we gave like a two-year availability warranty. It's pretty standard for OEMs to offer a, a lifetime warranty, and that lifetime is no longer 20 years. It's probably 25 or 30. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting. We, we in wind have faced the threat of the onslaught of solar, which is not something I thought I'd be saying in my career. Um, so, so which, is, which is, I think, again, a, a, a beneficial um, cycle. We've not had time to be complacent, um, you know, in, in getting ahead perhaps of some, some new thermal options. Um, and now solar's chomping on wind's heel. So wind actually has to get a bit more, a bit easier to invest in. Mm. Because yeah, solar is pretty passive. It's pretty, as an investor, you feel fairly safe that if you have to fix that panel, you can get a bloke in a ute and yes. fix the panel. Um, we, we need large cranes and the rest of it. So as an OEM, we've had to step, step up what we do, really. You've actually, the wind industry's responded quite well because I think the assumption was that solar was going to catch up to wind and then overtake it and leave it behind. Yeah. But I think we've seen in the contracting prices, as far as we can tell in Australia, that wind has actually brought down its costs already and mm. sought to match solar. So um, it's keeping up for the moment. Yeah, and, and, and look, I, you know, obviously we never really see the bottom line of, you know, PPAs and the rest yes. of it to know exactly what people are really paying and how they're doing it. Um, 
I've always loved the really, really simple metric in wind and also in solar, perhaps it's less relevant in solar, of, of you know, annual generation per, um, uh, I beg your pardon, of, of a dollar per annual generation metric. Mm. So um, w w when I look at that, wind is still well ahead of solar anywhere in Australia, pretty much. Mm. Even quite low wind is still ahead of solar. Where solar then catches up again is that it's, it's, it's able to command a cheaper cost of capital. Yeah. Right. And I think I think wind wind still has you know certain risks about it that are that are that are keeping the cost of capital higher, and that, that's something the wind game can can keep working on. Um, but the nice thing is they're complementary, right? Yes. For those of us that were worried about how we were going to heavily decarbonise the sector, you knew wind wasn't going to do the whole thing. You didn't know what was going to step up. Well, we know now, and that's that's amazing. You can see the future. Now you mentioned there um, in your preamble, um, wind, uh, sorry, grid friendly. Um, what do you mean by that? Is that being wind friendly to the grid or the grid being friendly to the wind or a bit of both? <laughs> um, uh, look, I, I'm stoked about the ISP happening. I don't agree with everything in it, but the ISP uh, at last is a, is, is a real, you know, a, an attempt to start planning, making the grid friendlier to at least where the resource is mm -hmm. and, and thinking about the future of the grid from the perspective of, well, where's the power coming from? So that, that's fantastic. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge believer that wind and all renewables actually have to step up at this point. Mm. Um, we could justifiably say, hey, look, we, we'll get to 10%, no trouble, we're not going to upset things. We'll probably get to 20 we're not going to really upset things. If we want to take over, over as the primary source of energy in the, in, the, in the grid and take on the electrification of a whole lot of other things that we currently do by burning stuff, um, we, we're going to have to step up as, as a technology and as an industry. We actually have to become um, the I, the grid stewards is the, the term mm -hmm. I like using. We we actually that used to be the synchronous generators with their mm -hmm. governors and their you know traditional ways of doing things. We can do all of you know we will be able to do it, but we need to start, step up and do it. Well, I don't think as an industry uh, or as a bunch of technologies we can point the finger at others to say hey, but you've got to help us. Mm -hmm. like, well, no, we've got to help ourselves. Mm -hmm. So grid friendliness. Um, yeah, that, that, that's your frequency response stuff. It's your, um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of things I think that, that wind and solar can do and increasingly that storage will be able to do. Um, and then when you whack that in with demand management, you, you can really see a very, very plausible, quite quick decarbonisation of the, of the electricity sector. Because we hear a lot of talk about the National Energy Guarantee and emissions policies and things like that, but I guess it's probably true to say that a lot of the things which are really going to dictate the rollout and the manner of the rollout are going to be in the rules. And, and as you said, the ISP, um, which for listeners is the Integrated System Plan, um, those and the changing of the rules to accommodate these new technologies are really going to be key, aren't they? Yep. Yeah, and who's got to pay? And, you know, is, is it the next project that has to pay for that, um, potentially making up for, you know, past misses or or just just the, the wholesale changes that are happening in the system and we've I think we've just got to be careful that we don't overburden the sector um, too quickly um, but by the same token I think the sector needs to take the responsibility as well so uh, you know we I, I think as we work through some of the more recent rule changes the, there's going to be some bumps along the way um, but uh, we've got to keep the lights on and uh, it's going to be done in a different way to the past so it's it, we, we've got some work to do. So is that what you mean by momentum then? It's not just the technology costs, it's also the way that these technologies are viewed by those who are sort of pulling and holding the levers? I mean, it's, it's as, much, as much a cultural thing than, than anything? It, 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 yes, and um, you, know, you, you look at every metric as an industry now. We're, we're sitting here at the Clean Energy Summit. 
850 people turned up to the gala dinner. Um, my God. Yes. Um, it's perhaps not the perfect metric of, you know, um, energy industry success, but it, it suggests that um, renewables is the mainstream, that there is, there is genuine, you know, half the tables there were large law firms and, and, uh, and banks, you know, mm. I mean, that, that's, that's how mainstream we are. Um, from a momentum perspective, um, I, I just think we're getting so good at building larger and larger and more cost-effective projects. And they don't have to be large, but the nice thing about large is that they do continue to drive down the LCOE. Um, I think, you know, you, you think back on some of the some of the difficult debates we were getting stuck in as to whether we would even bothering we should it be even bothering with this this mm. these, this sort of direction, right? Yeah. No one's raising that now. This is all about the timing of the evolution of the of, of, of the system and um, exactly how you do it. Um, so there is a, uh, you know, the. I think back on the RET changes, right? Yeah. That was that was painful for a sector. I, I personally, I, I had a bit to do with it, and I, I was a bit embarrassed as an Australian having to advocate a lower target, not a higher target. But the beautiful thing about getting that through, getting consensus back politically, was that it unleashed investment. So at last, we've been able to prove as a sector, look what we can do. Do we have to go through another period of investment drought to <laughs> unleash that momentum once more time? I, I, I sincerely hope not. I don't think we've got the luxury, you know. Um, I, 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 you know, we. Uh, one of our colleagues is is with us from from Denmark this week for the conference, and uh, his uh, revelation about just you know there is brown grass in Denmark at the moment because it's so darn hot. Mm. Um, and and that, you know, I think you know climate change is going to start biting, and when it really starts biting, it's going to be too late. Um, so, so no, I, I sincerely hope we don't have that sort of hiatus. I think we'll have a few other avenues to market now that we didn't have in the past. Mm. You know, the, 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 the pickup on corporate PPAs, I think the states are going to hang in there. Um, if, if there's no effective federal target for a period, then I, I hope we'll be able to keep some momentum going in the industry. Um, but uh, my, my fear is if we drop that momentum, we actually lose a lot of the, 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 the LCOE-related gains that we've, we've made. Mm. So the big teams of contractors out there that really know what they're doing, they're very efficient, they have to turn their workforce to other things. Yeah. They lose that skill base. We've had, I don't know how many mega cranes come into this country to install wind turbines, but uh, they'll go back offshore and you've got to convince owners to bring them back again. And let's finish off with um, a question about technology, investors' technology. How big a turbine is going to get and how quickly? I have made the mistake of trying to predict a maximum size for a wind turbine three or four times in my um, career in wind, and I'm not going to do it again. I can't, I, look, there'll be some limits, um, but it, it's not just about material science, it's about control systems, it's about logistics. Um, there's a bunch of angles to come at this, and um, I, 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 I don't know, is it 200 meter rotors? I don't know. It, 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 there, there will have to be some physical limit at some point, but I, I don't think we've hit it yet, onshore and certainly not offshore. So uh, that's exciting. But the real fun, I think, is going to be around smarts. It's going to be around hybrids, integrating storage, solar and wind together and, and forecasting it better. And, and, and yeah, baseload is a, obviously an overused and unnecessary term, but we're going to be starting to really fill out our use of the grid with, with a much better product. Baseload overused and underused until wind can provide it, I guess. Yeah, yeah then we'll, we'll, we'll hang a hat on that. <laughs> Peter, thanks very much for joining us. Cheers, Josh. Thanks.
So that was Peter Cowling, the Chief Executive of Vestas Australia. David, look, it's an interesting point that he makes about momentum and the point he makes right at the end there. Um, if the industry comes to a stop now or if it slows down considerably, we're going to lose expertise, we're going to lose that momentum. That's actually going to push prices up more than we need. We've seen this twice. We saw this in, in 2006 when the Ian McFarlane brought what was then the Emirate to a halt. We saw it with the Abbott government when it sort of had a big, um, tried to sort of kill the rent and eventually, uh, or eventually sort of reduced it and, and, and created a three-year um, investment hiatus. Gosh, if we look at the modelling from the Energy Security Board for the National Energy Guarantee, we're not just going to get a um, hiatus for a year or two. It's going to be for almost a whole decade. Well, I, I think that is the, you know, the um, ESB has put some more modelling details. So for anyone who's interested, there is a spreadsheet on uh, the ESB website, which is part of the COEG Energy Council website, uh, that details the modelling outputs of the uh, neg and no-neg cases as presented by Asil Allen. And you're right, Giles, for me, uh, uh, what I see as a failing of the, of the NIG case, the NIG policy, is that according to Asil Allen, if it, if it actually happens, essentially there will be not one wind farm or solar farm required behind the meter, not one gas plant, uh, in front of the meter, anything. I think you met there. In front of, in the, front of the meter, uh, between 2022 and, and 2030. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's very implausible, but not a single it, megawatt. No, it's, it's not just implausible; it's absolutely perfectly ridiculous. And the fact that anyone would suggest such a thing as an acceptable outcome to a new policy is just beyond belief, quite frankly. And look, I went a bit further because they present their price results in real dollar terms. Now, I just, I just. Who knows why they did that? But of course, it does make the prices look lower <laughs> when there's never any inflation. So we they had a 2.5% inflation assumption and we went ahead and inflated their prices at just 2%. And, you know, in the no-neg case, by 2025, uh, you get to like a $61 nominal price in no-neg case. And they're still saying that's not high enough for new wind investment when we've already seen several wind farms done at, you know, sub $60. And we've heard Peter Cowling and uh, the head of GE in Australia and uh, Asia Pacific's general manager, perhaps optimistically talking about a $40 price in 2025 for wind. And we can be very, very confident that the solar price is also going to be uh, coming down during that time. So uh, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. In some ways, I've actually got some sympathy for Kane Thornton, who said at the, at the CEC, who says he doesn't take much notice of the modelling. And I guess he doesn't, because certainly he didn't get the CEC to do any of its own modelling. I mean, one of the things that was so successful in the in when, when, when Tony Abbott was trying to reduce the RET was that everyone went out there and got their modelling done. Uh, and it showed that it would, uh, the more renewable energy would actually reduce prices, which, of course, it does. More supply reduces prices. And this is half the issue. I mean, you also made the point in your, in your piece last week that, you know, you, you sort of take modelling with a pinch of salt. But the problem is, is that we are being asked to embrace this policy on the basis of the modelling. And the modelling says quite implausibly that the prices um, will be 20% lower or 35% lower in the wholesale price than otherwise with a neg because of this certainty. And 
everyone's sort of saying, well, what bloody certainty? Because um, no one's going to believe such a low-ball emissions target is ever going to be staying in place for 10 years because that's just perfectly ridiculous. So we do have this modelling that we are being sold this product on the base of modelling. And I think if someone came to the door and sold a product with such a ridiculous argument, I'd just show them the door. And it basically, it, you know, if we go right back to why the NEG was proposed, it was talking about marrying climate and energy policy. Well, it doesn't really do that because these are two separate obligations and neither of them might be triggered at the moment. It also purports to end the bipartisanship. Well, it clearly does not because there's such a difference over the level of emissions, which is the clear investment signal for the industry going forward. So... Yeah, it was interesting to sort of talk to people going around the Clean Energy Council and um, I know the Clean Energy Council's got a cautious, um, well, a, a very conditional support on it, but just a lot of people out there were sort of saying to, asking to themselves, you know, neg or no neg, do we need it? Do we want it? And a lot of people were just sort of saying, well, under these conditions, no. Well, I, I agree with that, Charles. I think there was, um, in the rank and file, there's a lot of antipathy towards the policy. Uh, and you're right, you can't get bipartisanship when the policy is uh, unreasonable. It doesn't give certainty because most of us believe uh, that certainty can only be provided by a more ambitious level of client only be provided by a more ambitious level of client re reduction. And I, I think uh, it uh, is quite likely that the sort of prices in either the neg or no neg case occur, that we're going to see uh, a lot of uh, uh, people struggling with their investment cases in the renewable industry and existing coal-fired generators. And, and I think there's every chance that some coal generators may close a bit early. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, the ESB, and so I've got two problems with the ESB. One is it's uh, supporting modelling that is very hard to support plausibly, and, and to me this destroys confidence in the integrity of the ESB. Does it really have anyone's best interest at heart, or is it just trying to get some policy through because it's a policy that, and, and, and they can pat themselves on the back? So that's problem one. And, and problem two is the policy, if it does succeed, is actually going to cause price volatility and problems and not provide us with the security that we need. And this is why I think I've always advocated that in such a significant amount of change that many of us believe is really going to be required, there needs to be more guidance, more steering, more uh, 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 nudging from government to make sure we get this steady level of investment. We don't want a great rush that overloads the transmission system driven by a price signal. We don't want a complete collapse driven by very low prices. What we want is a steady managed transition that uh, uh, produces ever greater levels of uh, uh, carbon reduction and ever greater confidence in the ability that we can manage coal plant closures uh, without causing undue strain. Well, it goes back to what you've been saying and, and championing for a long time is just having a series of reverse auctions that you just sort of introduce capacity, you manage the system, you've got something like the integrated system plan, you can work out how much you need to either meet emissions targets or because you're sort of catering for the um, for the exit of coal-fired generators and you, and, and you hold a series of auctions. It's been, the, it's, been, it's been the thing that has been used by the ACT and is being used by Victoria and will be used by Queensland. It's really interesting to see 
that that was one of the proposals put up by the ACCC. It's really interesting to see that, um, the, according to the Australian, there's something now called the NEG Plus, which apparently is the NEG Plus, this idea of an auction in the hope that some fantasy that a coal-fired generator could win an auction. But what I think they're actually saying is, is that basically because no investment will be encouraged by this NEG, let's have an auction. So I say, stuff the NEG Plus, let's just have a plus. Let's just have a, <laughs> let's just have a series of reverse auctions and go down that way. Because I think AEMO have got the reliability covered with all the tools at their disposal, with the ISP and the RUT. And, um, you know, if they want day ahead markets or something like that, I think AMC is not on the head on that for the moment. But, you know, there's stuff that they can deploy to keep the lights on to make sure about reliability and encourage firming capacity. And you can set that in your auction requirements if that's what you want. Um, yeah, it just, just seems so obvious to me. Well, it's been obvious to me for years, Giles, and uh, I did notice that it was, it was quite amusing. I'm a keen reader of The Australian. They've got some great journalists over there. You've never told me that before, David. <laughs> and, 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 and you learn a lot about what the politicians are thinking because they've got good connections. One thing all these mainstream journos do, and that's how they get valued, is what what what's in their phone contact list. You know, it's not their analysis. And... I did notice that story from Matt Canavan and Tony Kelly about NIG Plus 2 disappeared off the Australian's pages very quickly. Ah, oh well. <laughs> be, so much be, for that be, then. <laughs> be, because, because although I'm sure it exists, uh, Josh doesn't want anyone, uh, you know, lending credibility to Labor's line that the, that the coalition doesn't actually control the federal party room. And, you know, my experience is that Josh Frydenberg is actually trying to micromanage the whole perception process very, very closely. If any journalist in any major paper steps out of line and, and, and writes something, you can be pretty sure you're going to get a call from Josh or one of his minders. If you, if you publish any, you know, it's just, um, it's extreme at the moment. And again, it's an important debate. It's important not because it's just about climate, but although that is vitally important and never going to stop until it's solved, but it's also important because this kicking the can down the road on the coal-fired power stations is going to come to an end. Even in the NEG case, in 2030, not that far away, we have a coal-fired power station in Queensland closing uh, uh, on their modelling. But we don't have any, any investment ahead of it. You know, these guys are going to have their three-year notice of closure and, and there isn't going to be an industry in Australia to do anything about it. No, it's perfectly ridiculous. Well, look, it's going to be interesting to see what happens this week. Um, the COAG ministers are meeting this Friday. Um, I don't think they can do anything but kick the can down the road. Um, they probably won't reject it out of hand, or you know, although you never know. We'll probably find out in the next day or two what their strategy is. But they've laid out some claims. They just want flexibility on the targets, um, something the coalition will refuse to have. So they can't lock in the target before next Tuesday. So on the, the Tuesday afterwards is when Josh takes the plan to the coalition party room. He's going to get beaten up there whether they vote in a majority, I'm not too sure what happens, and then it comes back to COAG. But then I think it's going to be at least another month before the final details are presented, and I reckon you get the final vote. That does, it take, that does take it quite close to the Victorian election. So, you know, there's going to be some interesting things there and some judgments made by the Victorian state Labor government about, you know, whether they can play the politics and be confident with that. They'll be conscious of how the Liberals will be attacking them on one side and how Get Up and the Greens and the others will be attacking them on the other side. So they probably feel in a bit of a pincer movement. But, um, you know, let's just hope that we can actually just sort of make a decision based on the best long-term outcome. And... Um, it certainly isn't a ridiculous 26% target, that's for sure. Well, I think more and more it is going to come back on the Queensland and Victorian uh, state policies. 
and inevitably I think New South Wales is going to be forced into more of a safeguarding policy um, um, uh, under the NEG or no NEG cases and uh, this is irrespective of what the federal government does. The only way around this is if the federal government does come up with its own form of reverse auctions and, and uh, you know, extends its tentacles further into the electricity sector, uh, which it's already done with the purchase of Snowy 2 uh, and, and yes. you know, whatever it's doing in gas. Yeah, OK. Look, David, um, really good to talk. I'm going to have a bit of a shout-out quickly to the uh, sponsors, Watt Watchers and Solaray Energy. We do appreciate your support, and um, I hope our listeners support them. Um, David, um, we'll wait with interest to see what happens um, this Friday and... Um, Hopefully some more good news about other projects come along soon as well. So um, enjoy the enjoy the discussion. Uh, likewise, Giles. And I, as I say, I look forward to seeing the new website and wish you all the best of luck with it. Good on you, mate. Thank you very much. And thanks to the listeners. As usual, um, have, have a chat to your friends about it. Go to your nearest platform. And don't forget um, Solar Insiders also. Uh, last week we had an interview with Sean Q from Canadian Solar. That was interesting. Um, so go and have a listen to that. And uh, we'll be back this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solaray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.